So today we are reading from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for the joy of the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer, give ear. O God of Jacob, uh, behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. For if the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen. You may be seated. Pastor Rob. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks for doing such a great job with the orchestra. I guess you should mention no harmonicas or bagpipes allowed, right? <laughs> well, I'm grateful for the um, strength to be here today. I, uh, I never quite know how this is going to work. I recorded this sermon, pre-recorded it last week, just in case. I've had kind of leth a lethargic uh, week and a half that have been, I've had some health issues. I'll maybe share a bit today. Um, and, uh, but then this, this past Friday just kind of had this sudden surge of energy that same, seemed to come to me from outside of myself, and, um, and it's lasted to today. So I'm grateful for the prayers, many prayers uh, that have been prayed that I can come and be able to be here in person. So um, thank you for that. We're going to begin today by talking about or thinking about the idea of home. Home and family are really some of the most important concepts in all cultures. Uh, in fact, the Chinese character for home, jia, is, can be translated as either home or family. Uh, pretty much all creatures have nesting instinct, instincts, and they realize the importance of home. I have a slide here. Have you ever watched a, ner a bird, not a nerd, a bird building a nest? <laughs> a nerd building a best. Um, so this is a uh, junco. And this bird perched outside a tree just outside our front door. And uh, we, when we went outside, it wouldn't move. It just sat there staring at us. It was kind of clicking in an agitated way, but it was just staring at us. And it was kind of a stretch, no bigger than a sparrow. But little did we know that it was actually, had actually built a nest in one of our hanging baskets, and it laid five eggs in that nest. So a bird's nest, if you've never thought about it, it's really an amazing engineering feat. It took this junco about five days to build this nest. She would have taken trips, uh, maybe hundreds or thousands of trips even, to get little twigs and mud and moss and put them together using her saliva. And, um, and then she lays her eggs, and then they are born into these disgusting little creatures called hatchlings. 
And after about 12 days, those hatchlings became fledglings. I didn't take uh, a picture of the fledglings, but they all survived. She was five for five. So Joy takes credit. She thinks she's the midwife, but uh, the junco, I think, was quite fine on her own. So all creatures have this idea of home. The book of Proverbs says this, like a bird that strays from his nest is a man who strays from his home. It would never occur to a bird to go to all the work of building a nest and then to abandon it on a whim. But when a man strays from his home, he loses an instinct that even an animal possesses. He becomes a lost soul himself, and he turns home into an unstable place rather than the place of refuge that it's meant to be. Maybe we are the only creatures, human beings are the only creatures, who make choices to ruin home with either abuse or abandonment. In the Bible story, human beings were created in time and place. Those are the two big words for us that kind of define our humanity at the beginning of our story, in time and place. And these are two of the things that we mess up most often, the two basic things of who we are. We use our time incorrectly. We come, become burdened by time. We're afraid of time running out. And we mess up place in significant ways. The most important thing about place, as the Bible story goes on, is home. We are made for home. We're not made for the office. We're not made for the hiking trail. Home is the place where we are ourselves. Whenever we head out, whether we're going to work or to play, we plan to return home. Home is where we're settled, where we can wear our pajamas, where we don't, don't, we don't need to put on makeup. We, may, we are most our true selves at home. We laugh, we cry, sometimes we shout and we scream and we do things at home that we would never do outside. Well, the, bi the Psalms have been described, the cries of the heart. And this Psalm, Psalm 84, we're looking at today, is the cry for home. So here's the big idea of today's sermon. Home for human beings is wherever God is, and to be away from home, being lost, is to be distant from God. We're made for home, we're made for relationship with God. To not be in relationship with God is to be lost. So God's way of punishing sinners is not waterboarding them or shoving bamboo up their fingernails, but simply removing himself from their presence. Romans 1, God gave them up. To be away from God is to be away from home. Psalm 84 is about God's home. And the psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. Later in this psalm, he's going to say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. It's a psalm composed by somebody who deeply desires to be at home with God. And that's what I learned from him in this psalm. And that's what I hope that we can cultivate in our relationship, our friendship with God. Well, for this psalmist, the psalm, uh, a son of Korah, it's called, God's home is meant to be the temple in Jerusalem. I'm going to do a two-minute biblical theology overview of God's addresses in the Bible. He has six of them. These are God's six addresses in the Bible. And then we'll go back to Psalm 84. First, address number one, heaven and the universe. 
<laughs> when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, he said that even the highest heavens could not contain God. He's greater than creation. So that means when we're outside, we see God in a, uh, we see God through a flower. We don't see God in a flower. We see him through a flower. And God dwells everywhere, all at once, wherever we happen to find ourselves, we can commune with him. So in the Bible, he pops up in a tent with Abraham. Uh, he shows up to Gideon in a wine press. He shows up to David in a cave. Uh, God is everywhere. But on the other hand, and the other five addresses will show this, God reveals himself specifically in specific places. So number two, the Garden of Eden. God dwelt with Adam and Eve. They enjoyed personal and direct con contact with him. He walked through the garden in the cool of the day, kind of is given almost human qualities. Number three, the temple and the tabernacle. God specifically revealed his glory in the temple. In the Old Testament, that's called the Shekinah glory. And it was so powerful, people who entered the temple with the Shekinah glory had to be careful to not be consumed by it. Number four, Jesus himself. Jesus dwelt among us as a tabernacle, John 1, verse 14. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said that whenever we seek for God, we find him in the face of Christ, the deepest revelation of who God is. Number five, our bodies. In the New Testament, one of the main reasons that we have a good and pure sexual ethic is because our bodies are God's temple. And number six, and finally, in the New Testament, the ultimate address that God holds is his church, we, the people of God. This is the one that most directly pertains to us. The Willingdon Church founders established this church in 1961, over 60 years ago. But it was actually God, through them, building a home for himself. That's what God's intent was for this church, to build a, ho a home for himself. So as we think about this psalm this morning, it's a psalm about God's home, let's keep that in mind, that we, the people gathered as Willingdon Church, are actually God's home. What does God have to say about his home? So Psalm 84 has three stanzas of equal length, longing for home in verses 1 to 4, second stanza, verses 5 to 8, the journey home, and third, 9 to 12, the security of home. And each of these stanzas, the word blessed is used uh, once, or blessed are. It's the only psalm where a blessing is pronounced on somebody. So the blessing of God is connected to his home. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to hang our thoughts this morning on three images from this psalm. The first is from the first stanza, the sparrow, verse 3. In the second stanza, the valley, verse 6. And the third stanza, the doorkeeper, in verse 10. First, the sparrow. Verses 1 to 4, longing for home. The sparrow. I would have thought that sparrows in God's house, we're talking about the temple here in Psalm 84, would have been quite unwanted. After all, this is God's holy house. Everything should be clean and in order. Sparrows are those little birds that hang out, outside, you know, outdoor patios at restaurants, and they look for crumbs under our tables. 
But the psalmist doesn't suggest that the sparrows weren't welcome. In fact, he says, even they have found a home in God's house, even these sparrows. Now, I mentioned earlier the Chinese word for uh, home or family. I mean, anybody remember what, what, what it was? Jia. The Chinese uh, language is pictographs. It's written as pictographs. So the character for Jia is a, uh, a roof, and underneath the roof is a pig, which is a really interesting idea. If you have Chinese friends, Paul Lee is one of our elders. Nigel actually should know this. He was the guy that made the announcements today. Ask him after the service, why in the world would the Chinese describe or portray a house, a home, as a pig under a roof? I think my wife quite gets it because she's lived with me for 40 years, so I've sometimes <laughs> turned it into a pigsty. But here, even the sparrow, the least of all birds, has found a home in God's house. What does it mean? If a bird were to build a nest somewhere close to the platform, and then on Sunday morning would start flying around and maybe doing its business on people in the front rows, we'd be calling for maintenance. Get that bird out of here. In the Bible, the sparrow is an illustration of something from the heart of God. In the Gospels, Jesus said that God took care of sparrows and he compared these birds, the most common and plentiful of all birds, the most insignificant of birds, he compared them to us. And he said, if God takes care of sparrows, how much more will he meet all of our needs? And here in Psalm 84, the sparrow is also an illustration. The psalmist has just said how much he loves God's house. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. His longing for God and his longing for God's house are the same thing because God is in his house. Sometimes people will say that they want to have a relationship with God. They're pretty okay with God. It's just the church they don't like very much. But God is to be found in his church. He likes to dwell with people who have body odor, people who have bad breath, people who have bad attitudes, people who say the wrong things. He's more than happy to call us his house. We're together are his temple, his specific address in the world. And the sparrow is fortunate enough to have built a nest in God's home. And the psalmist looks at that and he says, well, that is one lucky bird. Why do these nest-building birds receive mention in this psalm about God's house? On the one hand, the, the, the sparrow in the temple is annoying. They make messes everywhere. They're kind of like those people, not you and I. It's those people who make messes in God's house. They say the wrong thing at the wrong time. They enjoy the food. They don't lift a finger to help. On a Sunday morning, they drive 50 kilometers an hour through the parking lot. But the sparrow in God's house tells us that God is forever hospitable. To our Hebrew forefathers, the worst thing that you could be was inhospitable. If you are fortunate, unfortunate to, enough to live in the town of Sodom, and some strangers showed up to your house at midnight, you had to bring them under your roof to feed them, protect them from all the crazy people outside. We're most likely quite careful, aren't we, 
about the people who we allow into our house. We have locks on our doors and bars on our windows. In fact, we're more concerned usually with keeping people outside than we are with letting people inside. And even more, I'd never allow a bird into my house to build a nest. <laughs> but here, the, the bird has found a, a place in God's holy temple. God wants to show hospitality to even the most insignificant, to make sure that his house remains open to all. God has no locks on his doors. He has no exclusivity in his family. His home is open to all. Later, Jesus would use the phrase, the least of these, to describe the kind of people that God most wants to associate with. And not only that, these, these birds get to contribute to the praise in God's house. Those birds that are so annoying to us, they raise their voices and they praise God. They become part of the temple chorus. Some years ago, I served as a pastor in a church in Hong Kong. And uh, down the street from where we worshipped was a McDonald's. So before our service, I would often go and go over my sermon notes in that McDonald's and have a cup of coffee. Well, one morning, there was a man sitting at the table next to me. His name was Mr. Lee. And we struck up a conversation, told him who I was about our church, and invited him to come and fellowship with us at his church. Well, the next, me next week, Mr. Lee came to our church, and then he came back every week after that. And he would sit right in the front row. And Mr. Lee would sing the worship songs at the top of his lungs. The problem was, he didn't know any of the songs. And so he was almost always at least two words behind the rest of the congregation. Sometimes an entire sentence. And the worship leader, he would sit right and throw off the worship team. They couldn't keep their, their, you know, their place in the song. And one day the worship leader came, should we ask Mr. Lee to sit at the back or maybe ask him maybe to stop singing altogether? We were all pretty annoyed by him because he affected our singing. But I wonder how God felt. See, he even let sparrows into his house. I think maybe he found something beautiful in the voice of this elderly man who couldn't hold a tune. That is, by the way, another request for my harmonica in the orchestra, Nigel. <laughs> in this family that God calls home, we've got a lot of reasons to be annoyed by each other. And it's easy for us to shut the door of our hearts on each other. True hospitality is not just letting people through our doors, it's actually letting them into our lives to embrace them with all of their faults. It's the kind of hospitality that God showed to us. He welcomed us in our sin, not to make us more respectable and better than others so that we can simply reflect that kind of hospitality to other people. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This home at Willingdon, 4812 Willingdon, not the building, but the people gathered in it must be so deeply shaped by the love of God that we can make God proud of this thing that he calls his home as you show hospitality to one another. The community in which you're placed, you and I express that hospitable heart of God. So that's the sparrow. In the second stanza, the image is the valley. 
And here we see the Journey Home, which would be a really good name for a Christian organization if anyone ever thinks of it. In this second stanza, we're in the valley called the Valley of Weeping, or in Hebrew, the Valley of Bekah. Pilgrimage was a common experience for the Israelites. Three times a year, a year, the men were meant to travel to Jerusalem from all over the land. And there's an entire section of the psalm, Psalm 120 to 134, called the psalm of, Psalms of Ascent. They were to chant along the way, sing them together. So all Jewish travelers knew the psalms off by heart. By the way, this is a pitch for the psalms. We didn't get to do our class last year, but earlier this year. Almost every Jewish person knew every psalm off by heart. They could sing them on their bed at night. They could sing them on the road when they walked. So go for it, guys. On that long walk, most of them would go through something very dry and infertile called the Valley of Baca or the Valley of Weeping. And as they journey to God's house, that dry, they go through this dry area, this place of weeping. It becomes an oasis. How? Through their singing together. And for all of us, life's journey takes us through this valley of weeping. But notice, that's in verse 6. Notice what, in the, if you're in, in your text, notice what's on either side. In verse 5, the pilgrim's strength is in God. And in verse 7, the pilgrim goes from strength to strength. In verse 5, it's this person who sets his heart on pilgrimage. And the Hebrew here is a little bit hard to understand. It simply says, the person with a highway in their heart. <laughs> They're going there no matter what. This highway is, and we'd probably say today, the person who has preset their GPS. It's taking us there no matter what. You're programmed naturally to return home. So on our journeys through life, we experience often the valley of weeping. Now, I'm going to make the sermon a little bit personal at this point. The first service, I kind of was a bit emotional, but I think I'm going to make it through this one being okay. <laughs> but I need to make this a little bit personal at this time. Um, last um, July, an ambulance came to my home and uh, took me to the hospital because I was having... A seizure in bed. In fact, the seizure was so extreme, I separated my shoulder and even broke one of the bones in my shoulder. So I was clenching really, really hard. But it turns out that was the least of my worries. What they found out after a, a very short time was that there is a, a, can, a stage four bile duct cancer in my body, a large and inoperable tumor in my liver, and they told me I'd probably have months to live. Now, the earthly prognosis is still not that great unless God chooses to surprise us, uh, and the doctors suspect that the life sentence is pretty short. But I'm still here a year later. Glory to God. Uh, thank you for all the prayers. Um, but I will say that from a heavenly perspective, even though the prognosis um, is not promising me a long time here in this world, it's a really great prognosis because I'll be going to a place where you can't even buy uh, life insurance, a very low death rate in the place I'm going to. <laughs> but since last August, our family has done some weeping in this valley of Baca. And we do feel sad about the losses, things that we had expected to do. Uh, Pre-COVID, Joy and I had planned to visit Turkey, the site of many churches, the place I most want to go in the world. 
uh, site of much New Testament action. We had hoped to go back together. And just this year, my China co-workers, who I worked with for many years, uh, have just begun sending teams out from China to Chinese diaspora in other parts of the world. I would dearly love to be involved with them in this project. Um, I never did finish preparing that amazing Sermon on the Mount class that I had planned to teach for years, and I really don't know how the world is going to continue without it. I grieve mostly about not, not being able to go on long walks and hikes with joy. <sighs> that my boys will spend the, the rest of their lives with, without a dad. I grieve that I won't get to see my grandkids change the world because <laughs> they're really the two most um, significant people ever born into the human race. <laughs> so there's been some things to weep about. But the greatest thing I've learned over this year is that life comes out of death. It's the entire gospel story, is it not? Jesus said that when we lay down our lives, when we die, that's the place that we find a pathway for life. Now, I'm going to do a little aside here, but it's an important aside, I think, because it addresses the question. A lot of us pastors ask a question like, why isn't my church growing? Or, why aren't the people in my church growing? Jesus never told us to grow. He never gave us a recipe for growth. He never laid upon us an expectation to grow. He only told us to die. <laughs> that is really, really important. Economists want us to grow the economy. Psychologists want us to grow in our ability to take responsibility for ourselves. Progressives want us to grow in our acceptance of social trends. But it's only in the kingdom of heaven through the teaching of Jesus that life is built upon death. So whenever I feel that question rising within me, why isn't my marriage growing? Why isn't my prayer life growing? Why isn't my church growing? We hear Jesus asking a different question. Why aren't you dying? It's the one thing I asked you to do. We get back to that question. We find the seeds of death struggling to become a plant I died on my right to be right, and oh, wow, look, my marriage is growing. I die to an hour of extra sleep every morning, and oh, look, my prayer life is growing. So Psalm 84 says, when we pass through this valley of Baca, this valley of weeping, we make it a place of springs. There has been tears, definitely, in this past year, but they're always, for us as a family, replaced by laughter. It's taken a failing body to open my eyes to the beauty of the resurrection life. God's first words in the Bible, let there be light, opened up this universe for us and showed us colors. Never before, for me, has a red flower been so red. Never before has the song of a blackbird been so beautiful. Never before has the smell of homemade bread been so captivating. I can only imagine what beauty 
will be in that place where there's no sickness, no sin, no sorrow. And so like the psalmist, we go from strength to strength till each of us appears before God in Zion. We walk through valleys together on this pilgrimage through life. And as we make our way to that eternal home, a one that's not made with human hands, we find the presence of God in the presence of each other. This was the home that was built in that grazing field among grazing cattle in 1961, the house of God. And it's comprised of people who have been on this journey for 60 years together. Most of those founders have finished their earthly journey. Katie, who was one of the few founders left, was sitting right over uh, in the first service in front of me. Louise Thiessen, who was also one of the few founders, uh, finished her earthly journey last week. The memorial service is tomorrow. We're all here only for a little while. It's just a blip. But for a while, they shared this journey together with us. And together, they went from strength to strength. So that's the sparrow and the valley and finally the doorkeeper, verses 9 to 12. The psalm was written by one of the sons of Korah. They were actually the, door, they were the doorkeepers in God's house. In fact, the doorkeeper here may not be the best translation because this was actually, that was actually an important role, but this one in the psalm is kind of unimportant. Uh, it literally means the person who sits at the threshold, and he's really emphasizing the fact that it's not really that important, the role he's playing in God's house. I'd rather do this than dwell in the tents of the wicked. What he's saying is this, it doesn't matter what role I get to play in God's house because any role becomes relatively meaningless in the presence of God. As long as he can be near God, he's fine. Because he says, God's my son. He's the light. He's my shield. He's the protector. So I can wash dishes. I can preach a sermon. I can play a guitar. Or I can just sit there. What's important is not so much that I'm here, but that God's here. So he'd rather be some insignificant person in this house, God's family, than dwell in the tents of the wicked. God is a son and his shield. It's the only place in the Bible where the word son is used as a metaphor for God. In the ancient Near East, this was a leader for God's people. The sun is our means of seeing things. It's the opposite of darkness. God's home is that light-giving environment. So because you're part of this family, this church family, you gain perspectives on life that you wouldn't gain otherwise because you get to hear brothers and sisters share truth with we get to hear them share truth with us. God is our shield and he's our protector. He, his home is a completely safe environment, or it should be. There should be absolutely no gossip in God's home that destroys people. We should be able to be completely open and honest with one another because no one's going to hurt us in God's house. God is our protector. The term that's used repeatedly in Psalm 84 for God, the name for him, is Yahweh Sabaoth, which means, the, Eugene Peterson translates it in the messages, the Lord of heaven's armies. And it's a picture of God having heaven's armies looking after, perched outside this church family, or perched, if we could just have our eyes open to the invisible realm, heaven's armies are perched over us, watching over us to make sure we're okay. 
an army of angels watching over us. Some of us get into trouble so often, we need a whole army of angels. But you realize, because of that, I can't do so much as stub my toe without God's consent. So let's bring this to a close. When I was in the hospital last August and my situation seemed kind of dire, I began at that time to um, think more deeply about actually looking on the face of God. I've been pastoring churches for years, conducting, conducting funerals, teaching the Bible, and I've always known the right things to believe and most usually the right things to say. And when you feel like you're somewhat young and energetic, there's kind of a false sense of invincibility and you don't really think a whole lot about dying. And I believed in the afterlife, sort of like I believed that I'd wake up tomorrow. It's not that I didn't believe tomorrow existed, but hey, I've got today, and we're doing stuff, and there's food to eat and people to talk to. But suddenly, I found last summer, looking on the face of God seemed as likely as an an appointment in my Google calendar. 4 p.m., look on the face of God. And I began to long for that moment like I never had before. It's not that I wanted to die, but the prospect of seeing God face to face became entirely motivating for me. I wondered how it would be to look on the face of perfect love, and I don't think, we can't imagine it because You all have nice faces. I'm looking on your faces now, but none of you exude perfect love. I'm sorry to be honest. (laughs) But to look upon God, perfect love, and the longing for that surged within me. So the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. This was his earthly desire His soul yearned for the presence of God. And here's the question that I want to ask without guilt or condemnation. How much do you long for God Himself? We long for His blessing. We long for His prosperity. We long for protection. We might ask Him to help us ace the exam. But do our insides ache for His presence? When I was a child, we used to visit our grandparents once a week, and I would look forward to this little dish of canned peaches that they would put on the table and a few mints from their candy bowl. But face it, my grandparents were 70 years older than I was, and as time went on, those, those visits became harder and harder to endure. Thankfully, I was not a Chinese child, so I didn't have to visit until I was a young adult. I could quit when I was a young teenager. I had so little in common with Grandma and Grandpa. But is God sort of that way for us? We like the few treats that He gives us. But maybe it's uh, all we can do is to muster a 10-minute quiet time with Him each morning, or maybe not even that. We have so little in common with God. He's out there creating universes and running the world, and I've got to get the kids' lunches ready. The spiritual writer Dallas Willard wrote that the disciplines of solitude and silence are important for us so that we can learn to make life just about just God and me. 
But Dallas Willard warned, sometimes we're going to discover in those times of solitude and silence, there's maybe not a whole lot to just God and me after all. Psalm 84 has been my daily prayer for over 25 years. It's my first prayer every day, and it's helped cultivate for me a longing for God even when one didn't really exist in my soul. And it's a longing that will only be fulfilled when the veil is completely removed. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote about desire. And here's what he said. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I, sh I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. So the lesson for us, cultivate now this longing for God so that he becomes the chief among all our desires, and then take that with us into eternity and enjoy Him forever. There's a few reflection questions that are going to be up after this. I'm going to close in prayer in a moment. I invite you to um, have a look at the reflection questions, pray for a bit. People will be up here to pray with you if you'd like to be prayed for by an elder or staff member or somebody else, and uh, then the worship team will lead us in a few final songs. Thank you for the gift of yourself, our God. And we recognize, I think all of us in this room would, would say that we know you so dimly, we see you so dimly. And we long for you to open up our eyes more to who you are around us and within us and among us. Cultivate a desire, a longing for yourself as we continue to be your faithful church. That's our request of you, our God. And we need this, we need your spirit to do that work for us. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.